excited about these texts. This is just, there's so much good stuff today. And you might have to kick me out, right? I mean, at a certain point, pastor, shut up. Um, it's just so full of stuff. What I want to start off by, though, is I'm going to give you a title for each text, okay? I'm going to give you an idea or a heading for you to write down on your piece of paper. Uh, and it's going to lead into each text. So the Jeremiah text, this is the meaning of the whole text. You can't rise from the dead and stay dead at the same time, okay? So something like that. Can't rise from the dead and stay dead. That's Jeremiah. And then we're going to move into Romans 9 and 10, which is about how righteousness, we'll work on what that word means, but righteousness is a credit to you from Jesus. Credit. I want you to think about that word credit today. Righteousness is a credit to you from Jesus. And then the final one for that Luke 19 text, that God's promises always have consequences. God's promises always have consequences. These are all good things, and I hope to show you how this morning. We're also going to take, if you've got your Bible text kind of lined up because you did your work ahead of time from the newsletter and all, um, uh, there's another text I'm going to dive into briefly today, uh, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 to 15. So if you've marked your Bible already so it's faster, you might try to find your way to Isaiah. It's up to you. So, well, that's next week. Come back. So we're going to start with this Jeremiah text, which is just disturbing, frankly, at, at the end of it, especially. I mean, I don't know how, how comfortable you feel when he's talking about how, you know, how dare you come into my house and think you're mine just because you have a temple. I mean, to put that without giving you all the lead up to it, to put that into modern terminology, that could be said any number of ways. How dare you think that just because you go to church, God cares about you? How dare you think that just because you're baptized, God cares about you? Ooh, Lutherans, be careful. How dare you think that just because you're in here getting this word and sacrament, God loves you? Now, it's not that these things don't say God loves you. They do. But if you're going to walk out and say, now I'm going to do whatever the hell I please, well, then you didn't believe a word of it, did you? And so the fact of the matter is you can't stay dead and rise from the dead at the same time. You can't stay just a sinner and only a sinner after becoming a Christian. You will, of course, carry your sinful condition with you into the grave. That's part of the war. But you will not alone be a sinner, nor will you not have a regenerate will that's able to say to your flesh, I'm not going to worship Baal today with everybody else because the cow, God said, don't worship the cow. Now, again, not as easy today. There aren't those golden cows sitting there, although then again, they are out there. You just have to listen to what people are afraid of, and you'll find their idols very, very quickly. Well, the idol in Old Testament Israel was the temple, but the temple was the promise that God was going to save them. How did they do that? They took the promise that God was going to save them, and they began to use it as a phrase, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as a way to advocate doing whatever the hell they wanted to do. And again, I use the word hell because it's actually right. Hellish, fiendish, diabolical, demonic, I don't care what you call it, evil things. Christians don't get to do whatever the hell we want to do. We get to do whatever the heaven we're told to do. I don't mean to be sanctimonious about it. But we get to believe that our master actually knows what's going on, actually has all things in his hand. But then again, okay, so what do we do when then he says this thing that I said would save you, now it's not going to save you. Because that's what this text is about. And... Let me give you some broader perspective on it. Jeremiah 7, 8, and 9 are a 
total picture. They're one picture within the book. The book itself is not necessarily chronological. It's more thematic. You learn that later in the book. His first copy of the book, they cut it into shreds and burned it. So he had to write it again. And I'm not sure if it came out the same way, like in terms of the order. I don't know. The Lord is attuned to that. But the fact of the matter is it's not really chronological. But you can bank on that chapter 7, 8, and 9 in Jeremiah is one big idea. And the big idea is that I have told you you could repent long enough and you don't want to. So you're getting the boot, Jerusalem. Bye-bye. See you later. I created you in order to provide the way for the seed of Adam and the seed of Noah and the seed of Abraham to get all the way down to a guy named Jesus to save the world. And frankly, I don't need you to finish it. So we'll see you later. <laughs> uh, and oh, wait, I'm going to bring you back in 70 years so I can show you it's about death and resurrection from the beginning so that he can die and rise as the fulfillment of all of that. But in the meantime, you still don't believe in me. So you individuals, you're never going to believe in me. See you later. By the way, your city is going to be destroyed. That's the sermon. That's the whole sermon, right? It's, it's terrifying. Hear the word of the Lord, you men of Judah who enter these gates, right? You came in. You think God's here. Well, listen to this. And Jeremiah is a, a prophet, by the way. The fallout of this for Jeremiah, he, this is the beginning a little bit of his ministry too, though. I mean, this does not go well. His life is so awful. I, you do not want to have God give you what Jeremiah was given. Unless then again, maybe maybe the zeal with which he died at the end and the confidence with, with him, which he met his God, well, maybe you do want that, right? And that's the thing. Don't not want suffering. Don't pray for it. Don't turn it away when it comes. But hear these words he says. He says, amend your ways and your deeds. That's a very important thing there in the Hebrew. Those are different things. That your ways in Hebrew are big picture things and your deeds in Hebrew are little action things, right? Uh, amend your thinking about what you ought to do and amend what you actually do, he says. And this is what he said through all the prophets up to this point. All the other prophets have been coming saying the same thing. Stop doing the bad stuff. Please do the good stuff. Stop worshiping Baal and sacrificing people to, to all this kind of stuff. Instead, would you just come and believe that my promises to you are sufficient, that my commandments are sufficient, that my wisdom is with you? He said that over and over again. He repeats it here again. If you amend your ways, your deeds, if you execute judgment with each other, if you do not oppress each other, if you do not shed innocent blood, if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will cause you to dwell in this place. That all sounds like he's saying you still have one chance. But the thing is, the next page, next word says, no, you don't. So verse eight, it says, behold. Behold means check it out. Look right here. Something's changing. And that's the point. Something's changing. But in English, if we really wanted to get the point here, it's but, right? If you amend your ways, I will make you live here. If you do it differently, I will let you stay here. But you trust in deceptive words to no avail, and I'm tired of it. You keep listening to everybody else, and I'm tired of it. You steal and murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods, come and stand before me in my house, call by my name, and say we are delivered. And then you go on? So what he says in verse 11, do you think, do you think that my temple has become a thieves guild, a place for men to one up on men and get their money by deceiving them? And then he says, behold again, here he doesn't mean, but here he means, oh yes, I have seen it, Jerusalem, that you are thieves. I have seen that you worship mammon. I have seen that you are not my people and therefore goodbye. And as you know, this happened to Jerusalem. It took a couple generations, really, but, but well, I shouldn't say that. It took a couple decades. Uh, it happened. They were sent away. They were brought back. Now, why is this here today? It's going to have a lot to do with that Luke text from Jesus, where Jesus is going to talk about how Jerusalem has rejected its God and how it hasn't seen what it would make for peace and, what, and who God really is and how it's now over and Jerusalem will be destroyed. 
which then happens what, 40 years later, 70 AD, it happens again. We'll get to that with the Luke text. But part of that is to see here, it's been here all along. When Jesus calls it a den of thieves, it's not because it already hadn't been called a den of thieves. Yes? Hmm. Romans 9 then. God, there's so much more in Jeremiah. We're going to leave him. Uh, Romans 9. It's a weird place to start. It's 9.30 to like 33 and then 10.1 to 4, which kind of shows you how the chapter breaks and verse breaks aren't inspired. They're just, they're just not inspired. They're just there. And so we kind of have a, an overlap. But this overlaps in the middle of a pretty chunky section of Romans. Romans, if you sit down and read it from chapters 1 to 8, you're going to do pretty well. You're just going to snap right along. You're like, this all makes sense to me. Oh, that part was weird. Oh, I see what's going on here. You get to 9, and it starts to go off the rails really quickly. It gets into predestination. It gets into election and what Israel is. And is Israel a nation of people? Or is it the faith of people? Or is it a heritage? Or is it, 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 gets, it gets chunky would be the word I would use. But this section is not so chunky. It, it really is pretty clear by itself. You just have to realize he's in the middle of a big argument about who are the Jews. And you have to kind of bring that into this. Who are the Jews? What are they as a people now that Christ has risen from the dead? I, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, a Jew. I'm going to answer this question for you. No, I'm not Paul, right? But the, but the text is Paul. So he's going to answer the question. So far as Christians are concerned, who are the Jews? And that's what he's getting at. But first, he's going to point out then the Jews are those who have not known the visitation of their God. They worship a God who they didn't recognize and continue not to recognize, which means that they don't actually worship that God. How does he say this? On what basis? Well, let me read the text and then I'll translate it for you. He says, verse 30, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. And that a righteousness, that, that is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, here Jews, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if they were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. And then that's going to send us off from there, that stumbling stone. That's a, that's a riddle if there ever was one in the scriptures. But this opening section is really very clear. Once you strip away, especially the Jew-Gentile thing, Instead of Jew-Gentile, think about insider-outsider. And this isn't a bad thing. I mean, there's places where being the insider is kind of a bad thing. I was like, why do you even want to be that kind of person? But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about somebody who is inside of truth, as opposed to somebody who's outside of truth. Somebody who is wise and not a fool. Yeah? Or somebody who is an insider where God is concerned, and not an outsider where God is concerned. That's what's going on. And there was a time and a place where the insider knowledge of who God is was, in fact, in this thing called Israel. A nation, well, sort of, not the way we think of it these days. A place with a king, absolutely. A place that was, though, incomplete, insufficient, and destroyed by its God so that it could be completed later. And this other guy who would come. But in the meantime, while they wait for this other guy who will come, Israel has the very word of God. And so, indeed, they had the rules for life. But then what do they do as insiders with the rules for life? What all humans do with the opinion of the law, they made it about themselves. So it's really not about Jew or Gentile at all. And frankly, we need to zoom it fast forward to the moment because right now the Jews are not the insiders. They are not. They are the outsiders and we are the insiders. But then be careful what you do with this text as an insider who knows where to find God in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you find a false God there when you look to him? And it's all about what are you looking for? Are you looking for grace or are you looking for 
works. Now, I hope you write those words down, although I'm going to start using those words less, I think. They're the biblical words, but I just think we got to like a, a brain fog on those things. The difference between grace and works is the difference between give and get. They pursued salvation as if it was about give to God and get back. But the fact is that God is about giving to you and not getting back. And if you don't believe me, then you don't know who God is. Because this is a truth I think all Christians everywhere will have trouble denying. It is more blessed to give than to receive. If that is true and God is the most blessed one, then he doesn't want anything from you. Because he is the most blessed one. All he does is give. And see, the insiders of the Hebrews back in the day had that. They knew that. David believed that. But somewhere along the line, worshiping mammon, they forgot that. So they became outsiders even while they were insiders. And God flipped it and made it look like it really was again. And it happened again by the time it gets to Jesus. It happens again throughout history. That's what the Reformation was about. I would even contend that every generation, every decade, even every year, and even every day for you, it must happen one more time. You must constantly be reconverted. You must constantly have the regeneration of the Spirit condemning and raising you. Otherwise, the Word of God just isn't present in your life. He will not, this is, What's our topic for this one? Oh, this is the credit of Jesus. We're going to come back to that. But don't forget what the last thing we're going to say is today. God's promises have consequences. God's promises have consequences. You don't get to stay dead and rise from the dead, but you don't rise from the dead because you tried harder. <laughs> you rise from the dead because God made you rise from the dead. And he's not going to leave you staying dead. And so when he shouts that you don't stay dead, it's just about, an, oh, I, I should follow Jesus now. And he'll take care of the rest of that because he and his righteousness is a credit to you. Ah, so let's dig back into our insider-outsider conversation about, is it about what I do? Is it about what God gives? And let's look at this word faith right there in verse 30. It's not the only place in the Bible you see the word faith. It shows up all over. It's the word uh, in Greek, is pistuo, which probably doesn't help us that much this morning, but I think it's a word that's become so vanilla, it's almost poisonous. I mean, if you try to define what faith is right now? If you've been catechized as a Christian, you're going to say it's believing Jesus is the Savior. Well, good for you. How do you do that every day? Like, what does that mean? What does it look like to believe Jesus is the Savior every day? I am believing Jesus is the Savior. I am believing Jesus. Is the... Well, kind of actually, but that would get pretty old, I think, right? So it's not quite that, but it kind of is. It's as the things that Jesus the Savior has said to you, which are true, which are the Holy Spirit, are entering your life, they become the things you begin to say and do out to other people. And so, in fact, just the Scripture alone over time changes you, the same way the TV will. The TV will change your mind over time. You leave it on long enough, you are not strong enough to withstand it. Well, the Bible's bigger than the TV. <laughs> the Bible's God's almighty power and the Holy Spirit. Yeah? But then, to do that, you can't come into it looking for something to do. That's the point. You can't. You have to go in looking for a credit. All right? So this is the point about Jesus being the credit and the word faith. If we back that word faith up, like one or two translations in history, in Bible translation, right? So we're in English with the word faith. We're coming from the German in terms of our tradition of translation with Luther's Bible. And I don't know what they would have said for faith, but we're probably, faith in English is probably connected to that German word as much or more than it is to the Greek word pistuo. Although they wouldn't be completely disconnected, but in terms of overlap. But then between those, you also have Latin. And Latin is where we get a lot of the language from our liturgy. The, the titles of the things in our liturgy are the Latin first words of them. 
the nuke dimittis, the Latin first words of that song. Uh, um, the gloria, the Latin first word of that song. If you were to say the Nicene Creed in Latin, you would say credimus. It means we believe. You take that back to the eye, it's credo. I believe. I think if you'll give me one more second to tie this up, I can help you with that word, see faith in a new light. Because we don't have a way to talk about believing and credit in English, credimus. But we do, because we talk about, I just said it, I gave it away. Credit. What is credit? What's credit? When you go to the bank and you have good credit, what does it mean? It means the bank's going to trust you. Oh, it's about faith after all, ain't it? If something you see, you go, that's incredible. Well, what does, what's that word mean? It means you can't believe it. It's too amazing to believe. Incredible. Credit. Credimus. Credo. Creed. Jesus saves you by credit. His credibility, his answer, his righteousness, your belief. You're the bank, actually. He's coming to the bank saying, put your sins on me. I got it. You're like, well, I guess so. Credit. Trust. Trust. Moving from faith as an idea about a thing I have to trust as trusting the credible guy, the one with the credentials to save us, I think that's helpful. Because trust is the fear killer. When you're facing fear in your life, I guarantee you, it's because you're not trusting God. And you can say, oh, woe is me. Oh, I'm so sad. I never trust God. Okay, well, slow down, little boy. Huh? Uh, instead of doing that, I don't trust God. Ask yourself, why do I not trust God? Right now, I'm afraid. Whatever I'm afraid of is my idol. Guaranteed. Let me find my idol. That's my idol. God, are you bigger than this idol? What do I know about God? He is risen. I am paid for. I am immortal now. And that idol will become much smaller than it was. And suddenly, you won't be quite as afraid. It's amazing. It really works. Just try it. I'm, I'm not kidding. Like, write it down. Try it. Uh, it as, you, as you detail your own fear underneath who God is, well, you'll find your fear is pretty small beside him. Speaking of which. So... The next verse in Romans 9, verse 33, quotes this bit about the stumbling stone and the rock of offense from Isaiah 8, and also I believe it's in 28 as well as reference. But this will come up again in our gospel text from, from Jesus today. So we're going to take a little look at it, or you're going to hear at least, Isaiah 8, 11 to 15. It's not accidental that I'm talking about fear. It's right here in the same text. Isaiah says this, and he's also prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem eventually, um, uh, really in this same section. Uh, but he says this, The Lord spoke to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. Don't be like everybody else. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people calls a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now, I just got to laugh at that one, because how easy is it right now to think about a conspiracy? I bet you can come up with 10 right now. There's quite a few floating around. Um, maybe you're not listening to the news, or you only listen to one side of the news, but there's, there's conspiracies on every side. Everything's a conspiracy. Uh, what was it? Ryan Stelter on CNN said there's no thing in the world. Why aren't there news stations out there dedicated to destroying Trump the way there are ones dedicated to destroying Biden? I mean, I don't even know what's going on in the world anymore. It's just, it's just insane. Everyone's just saying whatever they want, right? And no one's fact-checking anybody. Uh, so, so in all of this, uh, the conspiracies, what does Jesus say? He says, do not say a conspiracy. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And it's actually talking about something even better. It's talking about when they tell you that you're going to church in a small group, and that's a conspiracy, and so you should stop, and we'll kill you if you don't. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. 
When they come at you and say that your trust in Jesus is a conspiracy. That's what they were saying about Isaiah as he was prophesying against Israel and the temple. All the prophets that were there who were paid to prophesy and their paycheck was tied to their prophecy said, this will all last forever. God's with you no matter what. Do what you want. And in comes Isaiah to say, (laughs) no, it won't. And they say, he's a liar. He's a conspirator. He's a traitor. He's treasonous. Go get him. And God says to him, don't be afraid of them. Instead, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Love that language. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Let him be your sanctuary. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. To both the houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble, fall, be broken, and taken. Now, again, that sounds pretty ominous, doesn't it? Well, again, it's, kind of, it's condemning people who've rejected Jesus. It's saying, you think you worship Jesus, but you don't, so you're gone. And if there is something going on spiritually in this nation right now, it is that. All the hubbub and conspiracy and fear has made church attendance in this nation drop in half. I, I don't have the actual number. Go fact check me. It's 60%. It's 40%. I don't know. It's, it's in half. Why? Well, maybe we're all just being safe. And maybe God is culling the herd. And if you're not watching for the day of visitation, you can miss it. That's what Luke 19 is about. So if you turn there, I told you, oh, maybe I didn't say this earlier. (laughs) I preach so many sermons on the weekend. Now it's easy to confuse myself what I've said. But our text here is going to convince us that the promises of God have consequences. They're good and bad, I suppose, depending on your perspective. But when I, when I look at this text, what I see here, uh, and I, I want to share it like from a movie picture because that's how I see it, but I, I don't want to waste your time with the movie. Um, if you can imagine like a warlord, you can go, you know, dark ages, go fantasy sci-fi. I don't care. Let's think of a warlord, somebody who's like so armored out and with such a crowd behind him that he's just going to do whatever he wants. So imagine a warlord who's approaching his enemy. Ah, I know. I've been listening to the... Dan Carlin, Hardcore History, you have heard me say that before. I'm on Wrath of the Khans right now. It's about the horse peoples of the Central Asian Plains, four episodes. Unbelievably scary, actually. The Khans. I mean, these guys just came and conquered. That's all they did. They didn't care. Just came and conquered. Barbarians. So Jesus is drawing near to destroy, like a barbarian would, a city of civilization. And he's going to do that. He's going to say the same thing Jeremiah said. I am here to destroy you. But he's going to do it with tears in his eyes. That tells you everything you need to know about Jesus right there. Everything. He weeps. He says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. <laughs> Every heart should say, what's that? Tell me that. Give me that, right? Give me the peace. Well, the day of visitation, the things that make for peace. You know this, Christian. He is risen. You are paid for. You cannot die now. He's coming back soon. That makes for peace. And those who rejoiced and sang Hosanna that day, they believed that. And some fell away and turned against him. And some returned afterward, redeemed, like we do, week in, week out. But there's something here. As he's about to get into some condemnation again, don't miss it. He's not here to damn. That's not why he's here. It's never why he's here. Day of judgment, he's not really even there to damn. He's there to save. The damnation is a side effect of the evil not wanting to get saved. 
bad on you, I guess, right? Think twice. So he weeps first, and he tells them that there is peace, and the peace was available to them. The pox, right? The pox. The pox dominate. That's Latin again. The peace of the Lord. The declaration that God is for them, not against them. They didn't know that. They instead were trying to earn it. And then, this bit's really tough. Uh, rest of verse 42 there. These things that make for peace, it says now they're hidden from your eyes. Which is, again, you can hear in this the condemnation. He's saying, Jerusalem, it's over for you. I'm going to die in you as the real temple anyway. So anyway, it has to happen. But meanwhile, you actually don't want me there. So it's over for you. You're not part of me. Just like Jeremiah said before. But he says that even as he says it to them with tears in his eyes, that it's hidden from them. I'm saying it, but you're never going to listen to me and it's going to happen anyway. The question in my mind this week when I saw that was, well, if it's hidden from their eyes, if salvation is hidden from your eyes, who hid it? You? The devil? What if God hid it? What if God hid salvation? Could we find it? Come on, give me an answer to that one. If God hid salvation, Almighty God, hide salvation, can you find it? Somebody. No! I'm going to disagree. Thank you for trying, though. If God hides it, can you find it? No. So the worst thing I can imagine is God hiding salvation from me, and I'll tell you, he does. When? Think Pharaoh. Think Pharaoh. Moses comes, repent. Moses comes, repent. Moses comes, repent. Pharaoh hardens his heart, hardens his heart, hardens his heart. Last time. Not Pharaoh hardening hearts. You can look it up. It's God. God will eventually say, I'm done with you, to you, as well as to groups. And that, again, is why we should be aware of it. Hidden from my eyes, who could do that? God could. Has he done it to you? No, you're sitting here having him tell you he hasn't done it to you yet. And he could, but he doesn't want to. So instead, know the other things that could lead you there, which is, again, as I already mentioned, you and the devil, who is your natural king. You're, you're born king and lord, but not your actual king and lord, because Christ is that now. So as much as you are fully possible of having all of that happen to you, and you should just own that, it's fully possible. The fact of the matter is, you're here, and your identity in Christ is here to hear these words, because that's not happening to you. Because when you hear this, you go, ooh, is that me? And then you get to hear Jesus say, no, it's not you. Who is it? Here? Jerusalem. And Judaism, you have to hear it as Judaism, Pharisaism. God bless those Jews out there who are trying to be good people in their neighborhoods. I want neighbors who are great people no matter what race or religion they come from. I just don't want barbarians around. At the same time, I'm not going to pretend for a minute that the Jewish people exist because they rejected the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth which took place as a public event in their midst. And they are established today as a religion of not believing that. That's sad to me. Paul told us a moment ago, we can hop back to Romans 9, how we should feel about them. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. There's no animosity in this whatsoever. I bear them witness. They have zeal. That's great. I just want them to have the knowledge that goes with it. But they keep seeking their righteousness, not from God, but from themselves, as men always do. And Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. What does that mean? The end of the law. We're back at the end of that Romans 10 section. You don't have to flip there. But the end of the law, what does that mean? It doesn't mean it's over. There's no such thing as the law being over. When we rise from the dead, you're still not going to kill each other. <laughs> Actually, you'll do it less there than here. You're not going to be supposed to kill each other, but he won't have to tell you not to kill each other because you're not going to kill each other. The law will follow us into paradise, not as a do this, but as a this is just the way that we are. 
So the end of the law does not mean it's over. What it means is that it's complete, that it is fulfilled. Where? In Jesus. Jesus is the fullness of all that could ever be done. All of it is in him. There's no more to be done in Jesus. But then he gives it. He credits it. He, he shares it freely to you. He feeds you with it. Yes? That reality, I turned the page and now I'm lost. <laughs> that reality can bring us back then to this bit about the visitation. So where do you find God now? If you're over there at the wailing wall, that temple that Jesus said would be torn down, you're at the wrong place. And frankly, I mentioned this earlier a little bit, right? If you're coming into any church and saying, well, because it's a church, because there's a building, because there's a man called pastor or a woman called pastor, because there's a book they call the Bible and they open it, because I got my kid wet with the word of God, because I eat some bread and wine with the word of God, I'm saved even if I hate God? No. No. You're saved from hating God. It's not that you're not saved. It's that you're saved from hating God. Know the visitation of grace when it's said out loud. Know when Jesus is pointed to and not you. The only way you ever fall is the liar come and points at you instead of Jesus and you follow. Only way. I'm going to share something with you. I'm going to say this a lot, I think. It's been a big part of my own trust this week as I've grown in my life through these texts. I carry a scar of, um, I'm easily hurt. I'm easily hurt by words. I could get into the depths of why that is. But the fact is, it's thin skin, right? And I don't bounce back easy from it. But I realized something this week about that fear then that always comes with conversations, introvert kind of thing, I suppose. The fear is always connected to that pain. I'm afraid of talking to you, my friends, because I'm afraid of past hurts coming again. I think a lot of us live like that, actually. Um, what I realized, though, was that for all the hurts I've ever had, I went back this week, I thought about three particular failed relationships in my life, not with women, with friends, men, grown men. And, and I thought about, you know, what, what is wrong in this picture that, that, is, that is me? What do I carry from that now into the present that affects how I treat other people? Why am I afraid, as I asked earlier? And I began to diagnose this again with that fear of that pain coming from a relationship where somebody who I want to like me doesn't like me. I can beat that by remembering that that doesn't hurt nearly as much as my own sin. It's been quite... Phenomenal. So that this phrase, this is the most important thing I learned this week for me. Take it or leave it. The key to me not being afraid is to know you can't hurt me more than I've already hurt me with my sin. And the more that I've been able to see that in his eyes, the less I'm afraid of you. The more I just want to reflect what he has to give. Now, I'm not saying that's how it's going to work for you. But I'm saying it's going to work for you. I'm going, to say in that, I'm going to say that Jesus' promises have consequences. He doesn't just leave you in the dirt and the muck. But he raises you up. And you get to see the muck. You're playing in it, actually, a little bit. Like, oh my goodness, ma'am, and here it is. <laughs> I'm here today, gone tomorrow. But then it's just that. And we, and this, something so much more. Now, 
I probably used up most of my time. Oh, we could still go a little longer. Back in the Luke text, visitation. You heard the good of visitation there, right? Gospel. Oh, cling to it. Because now he's going to get on him again. He goes into that temple. He drives out those who sell. Remember, this is this warlord action, right? I mean, he's, he doesn't really have the authority, but he, he does. And he's in the keeping of Jeremiah and Isaiah of old, in a sense, in the way he's excoriating their unbelief. And so he quotes both, my house shall be a house of prayer, I believe that's David, and then you have made it a den of robbers. That's the one from Jeremiah that we heard earlier. Den of robbers, by the way, I think that's about the most vanilla way to think of it. You know, it's a thieves guild. A thieves guild. A bunch of thieves who've gotten together and realized if they work together, they can lie better. It's pretty clever, really. We have all sorts of them these days. They call themselves everything from restaurants to banks. You know, I don't know. But the church shouldn't be one. And that's the thing, right? So, so what's he really mad about? He's mad about people coming into his house and thinking about money. Because it doesn't matter. He's got all that he wants. You've, you've got all that he wants you to have. He doesn't want you to try to make life here better with some sort of growth in our own fleshly passions. That could happen. Certainly wealth and good things are good things, but that's not what's here. We're not here to make it better here. We're here to have him make us better. There's a big difference. It's works and grace. Now, as he does this, it has the same effect it had on the people who heard Jeremiah. Those that were in charge, those who thought they knew how it ought to be and wanted it to keep going the way it had been going for so long, which was, in fact, remember, destroying them spiritually. They wanted that to keep going. So what do they say? Conspirator, treason, right? They did it to Jeremiah. They do it to Christ. He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priest, the scribes, and the principal men of the city. It's all the best people. All the best people. They were seeking to destroy him, not kill him, not get rid of him, not move him aside, destroy him. There's some hate going on. But they did not find anything they could do because they were hanging on his words. St. Paul mindset. Hymnal, pen, paper, Bible, hang on Jesus' words. It will change you. Last thing this morning. Oh, so good. Last thing. Coffee's good too. Thank you for letting me sip it. Behold, I'm laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Back at nine, Romans nine. It's important to recognize, I'm going to give you some very kind of classic language here. It's called the scandal of particularity. It's a big word, particularity. Being particular, a yeah, little thing, right? The scandal of being particular. Jesus being the only guy who saves us is particular. It's narrow. There's only one, not a million. Yeah? That is offensive and scandalous to everybody who doesn't believe it. It, it upsets them. It's like a stench in the nostrils. And we've got to own that. That means that Christianity will never be at peace with the world, ever. We will always have people accusing us of things that are not true, like hate, because we're loving them by speaking what God has truly said. Knowing that the scandal of particularity is at the same time the scandal of justification, the scandal of the free gift, the fact that God is all for you and you can't do anything for him, all of that is offensive, not only to modern man, but to man in general. Now, the beauty of regeneration is that as offensive as that might be, 
even to you and I right now, there's a part of you that knows there's a better way. And you've felt it, you've experienced it, you've thought it, you've hopefully written some of it down this very morning as we went through this distinction between being a people who knows you can't die and being a people who thinks you have to try not to die. Grace versus works. And you, St. Paul, are a people who I'm going to insist can't die. We're going to spend a year digging hard in how to make that something you get with your own hands so that it won't just be me saying he has risen and you are paid for and he's coming again now. It'll be all of us. And as I've told you from before COVID, from before we left down there, Rockford's not ready for what's coming. We've seen we haven't quite been ready yet either. Nobody knows what's coming, but we do. We're going to have more and more opportunities to tell people that Jesus has risen and that they can get him right here for their good forever. Yes. Yes. Let's eat and drink to that in the name of Jesus.